Okay, let's go through it then one more time. Um, what I wanted to stress tonight, at least this this one point, um, what we're doing here is the, considering the introductory material to the philosophy of right. And Hegel is actually, I think, if you if you um, summarize it to its barest minimum, he's saying two things. He's saying, okay. Everything that we call right, let's say the whole area of social philosophy, from property up to and including the uh, history of uh, state relations, uh, Weltgeist, spirit of the world, um, everything uh, in between we can call objective spirit, and objective spirit is the product um, of um, uh, freedom. It's the realization of freedom. And freedom, elsewhere, he has defined as the active uh, element of thought. So it's um, thought, which at its highest stage is freedom, which then um, uh, produces a world in which it can recognize itself. And thereby it's on its way to recognize itself even more than as objective spirit, it recognizes itself also as absolute spirit. Then we reach the final stage of uh, the encyclopedia. That's not in the philosophy of right, of course. That's the one thing he's saying. So everything that we're going to talk about in this type of social philosophy is the product of freedom. But then it's very important from the outset to give a proper definition of freedom and of course Hegel has to do that by taking the um, contemporary concept of freedom which he's not simply going to discard but he's going to describe it and show its insufficiency so we are here now dealing with the um, elaboration, Hegel's elaboration on what is contained in the contemporary concept of freedom. And we have found that in the modern era, because I started with the definitions that you can find on Wikipedia and in all sorts of introductions to social philosophy, <coughs> we already have something that is um, derived from Hegel, or at least something that Hegel described very uh, eloquently, and that is the difference between freedom and liberty. Um, that doesn't work in all languages. It doesn't really work in German, by the way. Uh, but it does work in English. Freedom and liberty um, are two very uh, good words to describe one element, one side of what uh, Hegel is describing here as the free will. Freedom... And why... Can I ask a question? Sure. Sure. Why the thought in its height state freedom? Why is it not something else? I mean, okay. it must necessarily be freedom, but why is it necessarily so? Uh, for very, very many reasons. Can you think of one yourself? Why, within European history and philosophy, why must it be freedom? Especially at the stage 
that we um, that our culture was in around 1830. I mean, what happened just before that, 1795? I mean, what is what is the greatest um, uh, miraculous and radical event uh, around the Central beginning of the century? Yes. So this upheaval of all social relations was also a total change in in Western culture, and it brought this this ancient idea that the Romans had of civil freedom for some. Only the elite could have that kind of freedom, and then were the citizens with the restricted freedom. Um, below them, and then below them there were the slaves um, and the foreigners, uh, and most of the time they were the same group. So this this ancient Roman idea of, of liberty, which also had Greek roots of course, but now it became, in the French Revolution, it became a universal. Now, now freedom was something that belonged to every human being, simply for the fact that he was a human being. Um, so that is, and the French Revolution was the first attempt to turn that concept of individual absolute freedom into some kind of social structure, to give it a social reality. Um, in Hegel's Prussia, the French Revolution, after it had uh, turned into a disaster itself in France, um, and you get this reaction against the French Revolution uh, within France and everywhere in, in, in the European um, sphere. Um, well, Hegel in his youth were, was discussing um, the concept of freedom uh, within Prussia, which had a very authoritarian um, state and how could freedom be realized? Um, one of the ideas of the French Revolution was a, an, an enlightenment idea that the only thing that had both universality and validity and unrestricted um, power to uh, enforce itself was reason. This was not just the dawn of social freedom, it was also the dawn of the unrestricted personal use of human reason. I mean, that, that also so that is, this, this is the starting point of the connection between reason, uh, thought, and freedom. Exactly, exactly. Now, of course, he, he, he gives a logical explanation for that by saying, look, freedom is just a word that we use for the fact that um, thinking or thought is without restrictions in its reference to itself, in its relation to itself. It has no boundaries. Uh, that was prepared by Fichte, uh, also a, a, an older contemporary of Hegel. Uh, we, we spoke about the infinite I, the infinite ego, which is the, the thrust of uh, free thought, um, which... In, yeah, I completely mind, forgot about Fichte. I have to read Fichte now as well. Well, just look up a Wikipedia article. You you find these basic uh, concepts that are important to Hegel as well. Uh, take Hölderlin. Hölderlin was uh, an attempt to free poetry 
from the shackles of Christianity. So, many of Hegel's contemporaries, um, some of which were revolutionaries, would just try to um, repeat the French Revolution within Prussia. Um, so, in Berlin, there was unrest and there was uh, police uh, brutality and, and, and there were all kinds of riots and stuff. So that, I mean, this is a very uh, difficult time. And, and uh, one of the myths that they uh, tried to uphold is that true freedom was Germanic freedom, was the freedom of Germanic tribes um, and not the freedom that Rome was talking about, which had its basis in law. Um, so you have all of these threads within Western culture, and especially in Germany, but also in France, that we're talking about this connection between the Enlightenment liberation of human reason and the social liberation from the ancient structures of authoritarianism uh, into this a very new and wonderful era where at the same time you had law and order and you had peace uh, in, in the social sphere but you also had the unlimited self-realization of individuals so how could that be achieved? I mean, as, as early as Immanuel Kant this was the great topic let's say from the days of the French Revolution um, so we have Kant and now we have Fichte and we have uh, Schelling, who turned into the more uh, mystical uh, road, um, and we have Hegel, who in his social philosophy for the first time, tried to define what this new world, this new social, um, this new social uh, structure, and, and uh, how, how this new society would look like, which would not give in to the the inner. Um, uh, the inner fault or weakness of the French Revolution, because in the era of the, the, the terror, um, according to Hegel, there you saw that uh, unrestricted freedom would simply lead to death and destruction. Um, Merve is gone. She will probably try to get back. Yeah. Uh, she probably lost the connection, but she will try to get back. Yeah. She, she'll have to um, look at the. Uh, <laughs> let's look at the recording uh, that we have later. But you see what I mean. So there you have historically the connection between thought and uh, freedom. Uh, logically, there is also this uh, connection because it's the reflection of the ego into itself without um, being caused by something outside of itself. I mean, my, my self-consciousness as such cannot be um, cannot be something that is caused from the outside. Because that is most certainly not self-evident. No? That the thought that is not self-evident, and here I got now I got the intrinsic within the Hegel system reason why why is freedom uh, the the highest uh, the thought at its highest, 
and also historical explanation from the outside. Well, there are many ways to approach that. Let me just give you one. Um, in the transition between the chapter on consciousness and self-consciousness, um, and by the way, what freedom of self-consciousness means is developed in that chapter, uh, Lord and Slave, etc. Um, but the, the transition between the two, um, the highest point of consciousness is that it understands that its object... She's back. She's back. Yes. Yes. See her. I hope she can, she can uh, hear us now. So we're talking about a transition from consciousness to self-consciousness because of the question Ivana put to me. Um, she said it's not really that clear that self-consciousness implies freedom. So, uh, just to give you one example, consciousness has as its highest object the world of natural laws. And suddenly it understands that the concept of the world of natural laws is ambiguous. Do we mean the world of natural laws as in the real world? Or do we mean the world of natural laws as in our scientific worldview? Is this world of scientific or natural laws, is it something of consciousness or is it something of reality? Now, it turns out in the third stage of that uh, final chapter on consciousness, that of course it is both. What is the presupposition of this recognition that it is both? That when I consider the law of gravity, it's at the same time something my consciousness has defined, and it is something that I can find in reality. And there is actually no difference. Yet there is a distinction. Because the law as such is a spiritual um, being, and the things that um, follow the law of gravity are, of course, natural things. Now, the presupposition, presupposition of that is something that is not, let's say, caused by this natural world. There's no reason whatsoever that self-consciousness emerges somehow. Um, self-consciousness uh, turns out to be the presupposition of this recognition that natural world and the world that I think of are the same. Um, and at the same time I discovered that my self-consciousness is very different from consciousness because it is actively positing itself. Consciousness sees itself as a reflection of its object. I consider the law of gravity because, or I accept the law of gravity because things uh, act like they are under that law. They act according to that law. So I can always think that the natural world causes me to see that world as a law according, uh, a world according, acting according uh, several laws. Um, but in order to, mm, to know that, in order to be able to state that, there has to be a ground for that. And that must be self-consciousness. I am aware both of a world as consciousness, 
and of myself as this consciousness. Well, that is actually self-consciousness. Now, self-consciousness cannot be the product of uh, the world in reality. Why not? If the reality of this world produces my consciousness, I would have no self-consciousness whatsoever. The world can produce its imprint in... Is, the, is that his uh, reply to Kant? Sure. Because, I mean, Kant said, you have to presuppose self-consciousness for there to be any object whatsoever. Hegel says, you're quite right, but that's only the subjective side. 